Yeah. Okay, oh. cool. Let's burst ahead. That was the bursting sound. Okay. Hello and welcome once again to Radio Moorpark. It is a delightfully sunny day and you'd think I'd be unhappy to be in here recording a podcast, but I'm recording one about a good book with a good friend, so how could I be unhappy? Who's that? Uh, it's you! <laughs> oh, wow! <laughs> and I'm a stag because I'm wearing shorts. <laughs> yes, you are. I am Callum and he is Steve and we are here to talk yeah. about Witches Abroad. Uh, I really want there to be like some kind of pun we can fit in there, like some... 40s gangster movie and saying like one of them's a girl and one of them's a guy well which is a broad and which is a fella that's it <laughs> some kind of pun that we can fit in there but I just couldn't come up with anything beforehand uh, uh. yeah I've got, I've got actually two puns for this <laughs> oh, oh open know, for the game the, for the subtitle of this when we eventually put it up on the, the website and on iTunes and so on and I'm kind of undecided as to which one to go with but <laughs> we'll see um, uh, yeah this feels very appropriate to be recording it because very um Apropos, because today, when I was on our way to your apartment, and sorry, by your apartment, I mean our luxury recording studio. Mm-hmm. When I was on our way to our luxury recording studio, look at the decadence. I, yeah, <laughs> so much decadence. coming out of wazoo. <laughs> um, I walked over a broken mirror that was on the ground. Ooh, on the street. yeah, I see. Yeah. So, right. did it take a little bit of yourself? I thought you were uh, looking a bit peaky. It, it, it may have. I haven't noticed so far, but there you go. I'll test it out. I'll, I'll, i got to rewatch that episode of The Simpsons where Bart loses his soul and see how he, he did. I think the la- he couldn't laugh. Um, oh, yeah, he couldn't laugh. And you just have to try and walk through a door. Or, uh, what's it called? An automatic door. door. Yeah. But listen, so long as he didn't like, you know, take the word of a dog with orange eyebrows on the way here, I think you're doing okay. <laughs> Don't mention that. Um, well... Perhaps some of you who either haven't read the book or haven't read it in a long, long time are like, what's what's the story with mirrors? Why is it important that he met a broken mirror on the way here? Um, and we will elaborate as to the significance of that with this brief plot summary before we dive into our analysis. After the death of Desiderata Hollow, McGrath has given her magic wand and the task of being fairy godmother to Ella, the daughter of the late Baron of Genoa. McGrath has joined, whether she likes it or not, by Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax as they travel to Genoa to carry out the Zidorata's instructions and ensure that Ella does not marry the new Duck of the city. After many, many hijinks along the way, the three witches arrive in Genoa and make the acquaintance of Mrs. Gogol, a mysterious voodoo lady who plots to overthrow the Duck with her zombie pal Mr. Saturday. They also discover that Genoa is actually ruled by Lilith, Granny Weatherwax's sister who uses mirror magic to force the city's inhabitants to adhere to fairy tale archetypes on pain of death. The duck, it transpires, is actually a frog, magically transformed by Lily, and only a kiss from Ella will transform him into a real prince. The witch's attempt to foil this scheme is in turn foiled by Lily, but Mrs. Gogol and Mr. Saturday, now empowered with swamp magic, arrive to destroy the duck and dethrone his magical benefactor. Granny, however, bests Mrs. Gogol in a contest of wills to win the right to face Lily and ensure that Genoa is no longer ruled by magic. A showdown with her sister leads to Lily being trapped between life and death inside the mirror, while Granny eventually emerges and joins her friends in taking the scenic route back to Lonkra. Okay, so now we are ready to tackle Witches Abroad head-on. 
Um, what what's your first impressions after uh, rereading this? Is was this one you had read many times before? Or this or- is one I'm going to reiterate. Story I've told you previously before now, but I remember I went on holiday once, quite appropriately considering this is a book about going on holiday yeah. in a way for Nanny Og at least anyway. And we went away for two weeks, and the entire family brought what totaled about six books uh, with us, which we flew through in about like three days so we ended up reading every book we had about four times which is abroad was among them so i read it so many times but having said that i still love reading it again because it's i feel i i i feel like uh, after the not i wouldn't say the weightier uh previous books like but the previous two books we've read at least reaper man and moving pictures they're very thematically rich whereas this one feels like a great romp it kind of just feels like Terry Patch is going like, I'm just going to have loads of fun here. Get some really fun characters, great dynamics, and just throw them into a bizarre situation and just let them have at it. And it works really, really well for that. Like, I mean, I I just love this book now, I have to say. What about you? Um, yeah, well, I, I've, I, I had read it, I think, only like once before and then had listened many, many times to the audiobook. The abridged version, read by Tony Robinson, it does an amazing job. Like myself and my brother, to this day, repeat the jokes back to each okay. other in his voice, um, or the voice he is doing of the characters. But it means that when you read the full book, it's a very strange situation where there are bits that you're really familiar with, and bits that I'm not so familiar with, and even like paragraphs where they will have taken out one or two lines in the audiobook. And I'll be reading this bit I'm familiar with, and then seeing these strange sentences that I'm like, oh, I don't recognize this here. Um, it's a bit like, you know, the difference between reading uh, Ulysses and watching Our Brother Where Art Thou. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it like that. A bit, a bit more of a distance between those. But okay. Yeah, somewhat. Um, what was I going to say? I think it's interesting what you said about the thematically rich versus romp because I think, I think in a lot of ways this is quite thematically rich while also being a romp. But I also feel that divide between the two is kind of... Um, uh, is sort of going to come into play in a big way when we start deciding where to rank this later. Um, Because, uh, well, I'll I'll elaborate on this later, but a frequent complaint I've encountered about this book is that it takes so long to get to the action and that they they sort of, they have the the romp around the, you know, countryside and all the foreign countries they visit. And then you get to Genoa and that's where the actual, you know, guts of the story is. Yeah. And you have all this stuff about, you know, narratology and stories and voodoo and so on. But it's it, most of it is contained in, like, the last maybe third of the book. And it's, I, I again, well, I suppose I'll park this for the moment because it, it's something that will come up a lot later. But it's really a question of whether you enjoy the early bit where they're just going through these foreign countries enough mm. or whether you feel like... I, I wish there was more of genuine later, but I feel like one way it works overall because I think even if it, even its biggest uh, detractors would say those um, early bits in the random foreign villages and so on are still really fun, mm. and it, it just works. With the characters are so good in this one. I, I it's been too long since I've read Weird Sisters, but it feels like they're more the trio of witches. Um, Granny Weatherworks, Nanny Og, and McGrath are more well-realized. They're more distinctive in this one, I think, than they were in Weird Sisters. I mean, I didn't read Sisters with... Sorry, I didn't read Weird Sisters with yourself and Rose, but I I read it quite a few times as well because The Witches, I really enjoyed The Witches' saga in uh, Discworld. But um, yeah, like you said, it feels like like they really become fleshed out in this Mm -hmm. one, like particularly well. Um, 
incidentally, which did you do? You, you said you made an interesting point there between um, whether or not you enjoy the the traveling through the villages, or if you prefer if there was more at the end. Like personally, I find I really enjoy the traveling aspect of it, and while Genoa, it's it's kind of a nice finale. I I do have some issues with the way they cramp it, but we'll come to that later. But I'd I'd almost prefer if the book itself was simply longer. I know this yeah. is a complaint we level at almost every Terry Pratchett book, but it is. I feel like I really enjoy the travel a bit. I almost think that like that's the perfect length, and I really, really enjoy it. But as you say, it does feel a little bit cramped at the end. Like I wish that could have been extended a bit more. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think by uh, like all the, the travelogue bits, the the running of the bulls parody, mm. and the, the bit on the riverboat where. Nanny loses the broom and the money, <laughs> and Granny gets back is a real highlight. I mean, I just I could divert into that for a second. I, I love everything about it. I love when uh, McGrath says, um, She's been gambling, said McGrath in tones of smug horror. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's <laughs> a great line, yeah, actually. And yeah, and how she's like so like, like horrified but also delighted, and then Granny's whole old lady act when she <laughs> goes into gamble with the, the car sharks and. Um, I like too the fact that even though Granny is this force of nature style character, you know, who um, strikes fear wherever she goes, he doesn't use that too lazily in that when she goes in, like, it isn't just, oh, Granny just goes in and bullies her way into getting all her money and brooms mm. back. She has to do something clever to to do it. Exactly. And then even then, they provide a reason when she talks about them. Um, Playing, uh, playing Kerbal Mr. Onion with Old Mother Dismas when she was ill, and how she is the detached retina in her second sight, so that she can see into the future. And this obviously would make her a very difficult card player to play against. Exactly, and that's why Granny's good. And even though that's just a paragraph, I like the fact that he goes to the effort to come up with, you know, come up with a bit of reason as to like here's why, you know, Granny can do these amazing things and just win it back. You're you're not just left relying mm. on like, oh, she's this. Whatever, wonderful character we all love, and we'll, we'll, we'll sort of you know accept uh, accept anything she does because we just expect oh, Granny Weatherwax always wins. Mm. He puts in the legwork to show how she how she does so. It's one reason I think actually that um, I, I I feel like this is something that we've talked about before, but uh, I think we've uh, fanboyed a little over the idea of what if Granny Weatherwax and Veterinary met, and mm. like how would they how would that interaction go? I think uh, we decreed that it would either be like a very calm conversation or massively explosive one or <laughs> the other. But um, I think it's the reason that Granny Weatherwax is a better overall character. Like she's better fle- uh, fleshed out because just as you're saying there, there's an explanation for why she's really good at cards. Mm-hmm. But that's an issue I remember having in Jingo, which is jumping ahead a little bit, where there's a point where Veterinary needs to juggle. Oh, yeah. And afterwards... Uh, Sergeant Colon says, my God, I didn't know you could juggle like that. And he's like, oh, neither did I. That was the first time I ever tried. And it sort of works in his character in a way, but at the same time, it is a little bit lazy. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I, I think he gets away with it with Veterinary because he's never a main character. Yeah, um, exactly. He's but, kind but, of... but you're right, there is less effort put into, like, you know, he's he can just be uh, as competent and perfect as Pratchett needs him to be. Exactly. And mm. we're as readers expected and we often do just accept it because he seems so um so cool and so intelligent and so uh, well so often so on so often he is simply the figure that uh vimes looks up to so mm-hmm. uh we generally are looking through vimes eyes and vimes is off- often frustrated by the way that um 
veterinary just seems like omnipresent and uh, um, just seems to know everything, can handle anything. So yeah. it makes sense from that perspective. I think the like what you're saying about how that it's done more effectively with, with Granny is I love the part at the start that uh, when they're having the witch's Sabbath how much the narration takes the piss out of her in a really fun way hmm. where it, there's some comments she makes about people from foreign parts and it's a really kind of you know short-sighted stereotypical comment and it says said Granny Weatherwax goodwill diplomat you know so <laughs> the, the narrator is poking fun at her small-mindedness hmm. and there's a part about how she uh, doesn't like Gamera Beavis because she had a was that she had a like nasty habit of being reasonable when provoked? <laughs> yeah. um, and it, these like this idea like that that it instantly is setting her up as this sort of um, you know uh, sort of small minded bullying busybody um, in a way that means she isn't automatically perfect, and I think works well with the book overall because when McGrath is expressing complaints about how she goes about you know practicing witchcraft how granny does now she doesn't do any real magic and you know she isn't actually a good person like we've seen that backed up you know we've Mm. seen uh like the book has somewhat it's weird reading in hindsight because you know how it's going to end and you know the subsequent witch books like granny is going to be this um uh morally resolute hero but in this particular book it does do a good job of kind of undercutting granny's moral and intellectual authority from the start in a way that when mcgrath starts to complain uh you don't feel like oh this is just setting it up so mcgrath will learn a lesson and see granny's way of doing things you think well yeah granny is pretty flawed and mcgrath has grounds for complaint there mm. um and that's what i was wondering i think one thing that maybe goes the other way is uh the the wonderful scene the little little red riding hood bit with the, the oh, wolf and so yes, on yeah, yeah. which is, is great in so many ways but the bit when granny and this again this is a bit left out of the audiobook so rereading it, it it sort of um you know surprised me when she talks to the woodcutter and kind of paralyzes him with magic and gets him to go and build the old woman's house and so mm, on mm. and mcgrath is clearly oblivious to this she says like oh is it wonderful how some people are kind or something like that or you don't need to bully people and i think i wonder if like that makes Granny finally coming good in the climax of the novel a little less climactic than it could be because you've all, you know, as I said, from the start, it sets up that, like, she's clearly not perfect. She has many flaws. So McGrath, even though she is a a wet hen, as Granny says, you know, she does have some grounds for complaint, but yet early midway through the novel we see, aha, but actually Granny's doing all this stuff when McGrath doesn't see it so that when she actually you know when the bigger climactic bits come up her confrontation with Lily and uh, who she best misses Gogo and so on not that they lack uh, dramatic impact but more that like that notion of like us doubting her as readers and kind Mm. of putting credibility into McGrath's doubting of her and this different ideas of uh, how witchcraft should be practiced is kind of undercut by seeing early on I know she. There is really is more to her than you think. Mm, mm. I do think uh, the moment for me that really uh, I, I do get where you mean that where you see you do see Granny Weatherwax's flaws and you start to you do question. You are somewhat on uh, Magrat's side when she's like you know you could do so much good. You could help people. Like why don't you like you know use your mm-hmm. magic to help people? And then uh, Granny Weatherwax has that like wonderful like retort where she's like because it'll never just help people or what was it what was the exact line i think it was um unfortunately i don't think i wrote it down but uh it was 
something along the lines of you know it'll never just be the one time you know it'll yeah. always be a case of you have to constantly help uh, people and funnily enough I don't I don't think there's a massive parallel the whole way through the book but that line always puts me in mind of like you know the idea of God and the like you know and like faith that sort of thing because you know like people question is like why oh, why do you let bad things happen mm-hmm. and like very often the response is like you need to be able to look after yourself. We can't do everything for you, you know? Yeah. So um, it's, it's it's not something I think that's like very resonant the whole way through the book. The idea of like, which is being, you know, gods or like, you know, being some kind of, a, I don't know, uh, what's the word? Divine entity mm-hmm. or something like that. It's just, I felt like it's there and it's it's interesting. It's very... It's it's a misplaced almost metaphor, but it's effective in in that moment. I think. Yeah, it's it's like that strangely thoughtful Futurama episode where Bender meets the you know he um, he's floating through space and the little oh yeah, yeah. Uh, world appears on him and he's their god and then he meets the thing at the end that might be god and it says something about like you know if you do too much people will uh, overly rely on you but if you do too little they won't you know they uh, will get angry at you um, and I I think. I hadn't thought of it, but that is an interesting parallel because that does seem to be the struggle uh, for Granny and that we see McGrath clashing, clashing with her over is that idea of like a witch being this very useful, very essential part of the local community and yet at the same time not overstepping their boundaries mm, mm. and doing too much like Lily is in kind of controlling a whole city. And I think it's a, it's a thin line to walk because at times... Like, the way it talks about, like, oh, you can't tell people what to do, and you can't do this, and you kind of think, well, you know, you don't want to advocate a, like, a world where, or at least I wouldn't want to advocate a world, like, a kind of, um, you know, world where you just shrug your shoulders and don't try and help anyone, or say there should be no kind of uh, institutions or authorities that actively try to help us through some kind of structure, you know, um, but at the same time, you see how easily it kind of tiptoes into tyranny, it comes up a lot again, and Nightwatch and like one or two of the other watch books about this mm. balance between doing too much and, and, and doing too little um, but Granny at least certainly does like it's kind of shown that she isn't someone who uh, she isn't a sort of like um, libertarian witch who, yeah. <laughs> who believes they shouldn't do anything because the, the, uh, the fact that the pod is set off by uh, with Desiderata saying, getting her to go to Genoa by saying she shouldn't go to Genoa and then she's determined to help and go through with it and, and so on. Uh, can I put something forward here that might be a little overly political and maybe I'm reading too much into it but it's just a thought I've had. Uh, this this book came out in 1991 which I think was just after Margaret Thatcher was in power. Um, yes, she would have. She yeah, finished yeah, up she, about 1990 yeah, she I think, did, wasn't no, it? Um, it was I think it was 91, yeah. Oh, was it? Okay, yeah. 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 Uh, I found that very interesting now, like partially because of this theme, the idea of that, um, you know, you know, you have to get people to help themselves. You can't just give stuff to them, which is very in line with like, you know, Thatcher's ideals. Yeah. But as well as that, um, and this is going to be jumping around a little bit, but we'll tighten that up later. Um, there's also a very big focus in this uh, book, obviously, on stories and fantasy, mm-hmm. you know, which traditionally were always viewed as a form of escapism from like you know like a lot of uh, fairy tales came out like during the dark ages when people were looking for a way to escape from the drudgery of real life Mm -hmm. so it's interesting that this came out around the time Thatcher's Britain was in place which was 
a pretty miserable time, you know, in Britain. For a lot of people, yeah. But at the same time, it's not simple fantasy because the way Pratchett approaches it, he kind of deconstructs or resists traditional fairy tales. So it's kind of um, a more cynical view, which would have come out of Thatcher's Britain, of escapism, which also could have come out of, you know, Thatcher's mm-hmm. Britain. Um, what do you think of that idea? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And I, I hadn't, hadn't thought of it at all in Thatcher terms before, but that idea of like, like uh, you know, you don't want to help people too much, it could certainly be being that, uh, like, you know, looked as kind of proto or, or neo Thatcherite. Mm. Um, but I mean, at, I, I, at, the, at the same time, I think kind of um, Granny has much more compassion for, like, uh, expresses much more compassion for people's misfortune than you yeah. know uh, than Margaret Thatcher oh yeah well, yeah. what about Margaret Thatcher the woman than Margaret Thatcher's policies ever seem to as, yeah, as Prime yeah, Minister yeah. Like, like her seem to allow much more for the fact that like you know not everyone is in a situation because they deserve it but you could, uh, you could actually say that like uh, Lily would actually be a good um, uh, you know embodiment analogue yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well I mean it's a weird thing she is and she isn't in that like she is in that she kind of clearly has these very uh, judgmental, you know, and, and it's just uh, expressing my political opinions quite clearly by, yeah, quite structure. Judgmental, deluded versions <laughs> of how, you know, society works mm, and how mm. people work. But yet at the same time, I feel like, like her kind of story dystopia is much more prescriptive than anything like uh, a lot of what Thatcher's government would have done, which was much more about like removing the government's role in things and just letting business and so on mm-hmm. um, flourish in that. Uh, but, I, I mean, there's a whole thing to go down about what is it, um, the law that was brought in about not being able to uh, teach anything that might potentially promote homosexuality and there stuff like that and mm-hmm. the Thatcher era that is very prescriptive in terms of how they want to be that kind of matches Lily and yeah, at the same time she's often equated with Reagan and um, building a small government that just you know kind of let society operate uh, itself and come what may but um i think there's def- there is definitely i mean it's very hard to kind of like nail something down here like i don't think like uh terry patrick was trying to make a statement about that no. written at all but i think there is but, a yeah. lot in this that's informed from that time yeah very yeah. much so yeah. yeah i think you're right and i think i think that's that's probably the a better way of looking at it when we think of these like mm. parallels and stuff like that I, you know just as it's a context that's informing, you know, when he's writing and what he's writing about rather than a very deliberate example to mm. um, say anything or deal with it. But what you're saying about the um, fairy tales and fairy tales being coming from the Dark Ages nothing being really restricting because they're just looking for some kind of an easy-to-follow moral guidance that's exactly, sometimes yeah. quite harsh, but it, they emerge from much harsher times. Um, do you think there's, like... Like a sort of, I know there's certainly an irony, but like a weird self-contradictory nature about a fantasy author critiquing the act of storytelling and mm. uh, like kind of restrictions and like like the idea when he talks about Lily holding up a mirror to society and chopping off the bits that didn't fit. Mm. That's sort of what every writer does. Yeah, um, yeah, it's um, it's a tricky one because. My gut instinct is I don't think he realised how ironic it was going to be to do this. You know, like, I think he just thought, like, 
fairy tales there's a lot wrong with them and I'm just going to like point out all the ridiculous things we believe about fairy tales like I particularly love the little red riding bit aspect when um, Magra goes so your mom knows there's a wolf in these woods <laughs> yeah. right and uh, she still sent you out here like even though your grandmother is miles away yeah what's your point ah oh, nothing it just, <laughs> it just makes sense <laughs> you know um, or the, the house falls on Nanny's head and they go oh, we have no boots why do you want their boots I don't know someone just tells us <laughs> yeah. we want our boots <laughs> there's a lot of great bits I found it actually one bit that I found very odd was a lot of those story tales are very very traditional but for whatever reason you know the bit where Gollum kind of just shows up at the side <laughs> yeah. of the boat <laughs> I again that's a bit that's not in the audiobook so that took me completely by surprise <laughs> years, and I love that like <laughs> it's so odd though because like I mean with the exception of the bit with Dracula I mean everything is kind of a Grimm's fairy tale sort well, of the, thing the Wizard of Oz bit yeah it? okay yeah I suppose and, yeah. and the, the Gollum bit is preceded by the bits with the dwarves that echo a lot of talking stuff at the invisible yeah. runes on the door and uh, the dwarf bread is something that, like, you know, I've, I'm not 100% sure, but, like, comes out of Tolkien rather than any traditional... Oh, yeah, I mean, like, lore. Uh, actually, there's a great little parallel there between, like, lemless bread yeah. and, like, uh, dwarf bread. Just, like, on the one hand, lemless bread, eat a bite and you'll be full forever. Dwarf bread, you'll eat anything other than dwarf yeah. bread. <laughs> that moment where uh, the house falls and the, and, uh, the dwarves are like, real dwarf bread? Are you serious? Is any help I think the cat pissed on it as well <laughs> wow <laughs> oh it's just it's bizarre but um yeah god it's just it's it's it, I, I found it a little bit strange but like yeah I suppose it works the the Dracula bit is again very very odd it's almost do you know the funny thing is if uh Carpe Juggalum wasn't released I would look at this point thinking, oh, I'd love for a whole book <laughs> to be based around them taking on vampires because, like, that bit was just so much fun. Just, like, it's a really simple bit, just, like, going into the the bar, which is, like, a, or the pub or whatever. No, it would be a tavern. Or a tavern. Beg your pardon. If it's a, a Dracula type thing. You know? <laughs> but just that and the entire... <laughs> I just... I love the way uh, he approaches the scene with Magrat sleeping in the one room and she can hear the voices in the yeah, other room. And it yeah. just, all you can hear is dialogue and it's just... It's great. You can see it all right there. It's, oh, it's um, fantastic. Yeah, that, that really hit home with me. I, I just remember uh, I, I used to work night shifts in Dublin Bus and we would jet, we would have to work through until 6am but we'd usually finish at like 3 at the latest and mm. uh, if it was a, a weekend you'd have to you know uh, then clean the night links as they came in at like near 6 but so most of the time you would just like a lot of the lads would say watch a film for the remaining hours but I'd go up with two older guys and just sort of get sleep in the locker rooms yeah. and it would be like that like I'd be lying down across from them on the other bench and they would just be lying there talking to one another for ages and then occasionally be like oh would you ever try to get to sleep <laughs> then, you know and then just continue talking and I was reading that whole bit like yeah this feels very familiar but you're right the, the Dracula bit uh, which is wonderful does read very strangely in light of Carpe Dragalum where vampires are this huge threat to Lonkran which is just like and this one like it's just, just basically like Grebo eats yeah. him and that's it like yeah. I love it um uh, risen from the grave but ne- never the cat I think that's a quote I've seen so, like I've seen hundreds of actually no there's a great illustration I can't remember where I've seen it before now it's in one of the books and you can just see like a uh, Grebo like it's a great illustration of Grebo and like lots of 
memorabilia from Witches Abroad, but he just has his paw on this bat who's looking absolutely terrified into the thing, and it's just got that quote underneath it. It's it's a wonder. I'd love to have it as a poster, actually. It'd be fantastic. Um, I have one more point to make about uh, stories in general before moving on to the next theme. But um, and actually, this is a good segue. But I think it's very interesting that uh, in this book, uh, Terry Pratchett kind of sort of attacks the fantasy genre and how important it is that he has his main characters traveling to a specific location and it's not something that's simply hap- happening in Lanker or something. Because like um, it kind of underlines the idea as that they're basically visiting fairyland, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to like, oh, something's just going on here. It's like, it's, it's, it's othered from like there's there's regular fantasy and there's uh, Pratchett fantasy you know it's kind of mm-hmm. makes a point of separating the yeah two. They, they've got to travel to get to exactly to get to yeah, a, yeah. a conventional fantasy or fairy tale mm. yeah um, I, I think that irony of him being a fantasy writer writing it is that he allows for much more nuance and ambiguity in um, in his story than is in traditional fairy tales that have a very prescriptive didactic moral most mm-hmm. of the time um, and you know don't have uh, usually have this very set cast of characters and everyone else isn't important like quite a lot of uh, older fairy tales will feature you know people dying or uh, incurring misfortune along the way just to teach someone else a lesson yeah. and they become kind of just unimportant collateral damage um, and I, I feel like this even though by nature of it being any kind of a novel it has to choose characters to focus on he does again he undercuts even his protagonist like Granny Weatherwax by taking the piss out of her early on and also he has those bits about you know when um, uh, Samadhi Nui Moore begins and he, he Mrs. Gogol is kind of rising um, Saturday in the swamp and he talks about all the people whose stories are never about all the like um you know, humble was it like humble tanners who died a lot poorer and a mm. lot humbler and things like that. Um, so he's able to highlight these different points of view and allow for that nuance, like even that kind of ambiguous, ambivalent Thatcherite discussion we're having there is sort of proof that there's no real, you know, not a lot of really definite black and white thinking uh, mm. to emerge from this. I actually I wrote an essay when I was doing my masters about. Um, his reinvention of the witch archetype and I contrasted it not only with the kind of traditional idea of witch has been used to demonize um, female knowledge and female power and sexuality but also a second wave feminist attempt to kind of revive the witch as an icon but in a way that really um, uh, I suppose like idealized or made a sort of Mary Sue of the witch that was actually completely divorced from most women's Mm. actual lived experience or struggles by just depicting her as this kind of you know perfect nature goddess kind of thing it's interesting and and uh, like a key part of that to me is that Pratchett kind of makes his uh, witches like they're appealing and um, engaging but also really human and flawed Mm, and it's interesting you say that that um, I feel like an extension of that argument is the young adult books that he does the likes of the wee free men Mm -hmm. the half full of sky and uh they have that main character, and it's terrible that I keep forgetting people's names here. Tiffany. Tiffany, yes, yeah. Tiffany Aiding, that was it. And uh, she's a very relatable character, especially for readers of these kind of novels, because they probably would be about that age, like when they're, especially for the young adult novels. So um, it, put, it paints a very, very positive picture for, like, you know, independent young women in that case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um speaking of, of of independent young women or perhaps not so independent 
uh, I really love McGrath's. <laughs> uh it, it just mcgrath in this novel like i i, I find um <laughs> incredibly endearing and funny the moment <laughs> where she greets the guy at the door with hi and it's ha- h-a-i yeah. because it's still like hi <laughs> using your uh you know like performing a karate it's actually japanese for yes yeah so i was about to say yeah, i saw like, that yeah that's so cool <laughs> but um yeah just her efforts to uh kind of that like uh, so like her mind's so open you couldn't find a, you'd need surgery to get a more open <laughs> one and her efforts towards self-improvement things that are really confused like all the way of the scorpion and we can see it's from Dibbler so it's obviously a sound <laughs> uh, but she is so earnest about it um, and also in it brings up some good points I mean ultimately what she says when she says with the way of the scorpion and you've got to use your opponent's strength against him and Nanny is you know uh, sceptical about this saying oh get him to hit himself I mean, that's essentially what Granny Weatherwax does at the end with Mrs. Gogo. Like, mm, when yeah, she yeah. puts her hand into the fire and gets the voodoo doll of her. She uses... And it, it does say her gaze lingered on McGrath. And I feel like, for me, that's her saying, you know what, I wasn't dismissing everything you said as utter BS. What what you said earlier about using people's strength against them, there's something in that, you know? Actually, um, and it's a very... I'm glad you brought that up because that is a moment in the book that I absolutely adore because it isn't focused on for any great length of time. Yeah. Like, the fact that, that that... It's literally just that sentence and it's not even de- definitive because, if I remember rightly, the sentence is just that it seemed like she uh, her gaze lingered on Magrat for a moment and that's it. Yeah. Like, yeah, we know the way... Just from the way it's written, we know this is like a confirmation that, yes, I took what you said on board here you go but it's so like dismissive in like in the in that world that you're like yeah she's never going to admit that she's never going to say to Magrat yeah yeah see I took what you said on board Mm -hmm. it's just kind of like well we know that's that's it (laughs) you know yeah I mean we'll we'll, I suppose get back to later whether we uh, it's it's it it could elaborate or um, uh, spend the book could elaborate or spend more time dwelling on certain parts but at other parts, it's just written with tremendous restraint mm. where, you know, it just says a whole lot with very little. Like that bit when Mrs. Gogol is talking to Nanny and Granny about Lily Weatherwacks and it's like, uh, you know, more powerful than you, pause, yes. And then uh, she uses mirror magic. Oh, mirror magic okay. She doesn't use one mirror. Oh, she uses two. Oh, and you know, it's, uh, they don't even have to go like later. I think they touch on the idea of your soul being kind of, um, uh, you know, spread out to tin with all the mirrors. And it's something they touched on before in um, Equal Rights when Esk is between two mirrors and she sees her reflections going on and on, mm. and one of them waves at her. Um, and, and I think later uh, in Masquerades, um, Agnes gets freaked out when she uh, gets in that dancing room full of mirrors. Yeah, that sounds familiar, all right. Yeah. So it is something that's shrouded. But there's lovely little moments like that where it just carries so much weight. And the other bit is when, when Ella tells the three witches about uh, Lily turning the footmen into beetles and treading on them. And you don't get into their heads where it's like, McGrath was horrified. Or like, Nanny couldn't believe it. And, you know, I think McGrath just says like, witches don't kill people. And Nanny's like, oh, well, this is foreign parts. She looked away. And uh, Granny says something like, you know, well, we'll see you off somewhere safe, young lady. And then ellipse we we shall see you know and it's just wonderfully like atmospheric and really building to a confrontation and you get such mm. a sense of like the weight of what Lilith's done and their dis 
you know, horrified disbelief at it without having to go into all these superlatives about like, they were gobsmacked, they couldn't believe it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, yeah, there's a lot of uh, restraint in that way that's really impressive. But, but sorry, jumping back to um, McGrath, who uh, is is really excellent. I love that bit where she gets confidence from uh, Granny mm, going that's into the excellent. Ball. That's <laughs> really yeah. excellent, that part. Just throwing her weight around and the, the, the idea that the uh, the butler, she just like dismisses him and says he w- recognised the the terrible manners of the well-bred and just thinks, <laughs> <laughs> the idea like, oh, she's really rude and is wearing posh clothes, so she belongs here, I'll announce her. Mysterious and beautiful stranger. Do you know, it's funny, when I was reading these books growing up, I always, I, I felt Magrat was a great character, like genuinely just thought, like she's the hero of the piece and I thought like uh, all of Granny's accusations of her being a wet, wet hen was like, they were quite unfounded, but it's funny, as I got older and increasingly more cynical, I found myself relating a lot more to Granny. Like, even though I love her as a character, I completely see where she's coming from. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and stuff. It's, it's definitely well-founded. But, um, but I just, I, I loved it. Kind of like the bit where, she, like there's parts earlier where she's apologising and says she doesn't know why she's apologising, <laughs> really. Um, but I think she has, what, what makes her really interesting and endearing to me is that unlike certainly unlike nanny and maybe unlike granny she has a really definite character arc like i said this to rose we done weird sisters in that i said like i don't think uh, I, I think i said about nanny that she doesn't really develop over the books we just see a little bit more of her than we had seen before you know mm, yeah but yeah. you don't get the sense this is anything new that she's thinking about or developing it's just like that um, we we are seeing it for the first time whereas mcgrath we see her grow as a character and the kind of arc she's on between weird sisters to lords and ladies i think maybe might be the best character or one of the best character development arcs yeah i agree with you there over multiple books i think so yeah and um i remember i was thinking at the time i was looking over like people's arcs in this book and wondering like how it develops and i have, I have to say like in this one it's particularly good because she has that wonderful moment at the end when i feel like Lilith aside, I think, you know, the, the two snake sisters, oh, yeah. they are particularly well described. Like, you really genuinely, like, far more so than actually than Lily. I think that, like, uh, the snakes are probably the most terrifying thing in the entire book. Yeah. Because, like, the way, I remember at one point uh, when Granny spots them first and then they get into a carriage and she, uh, Granny dives into the minds of the horses and she was like, ooh, yeah, the horses know what they're carrying behind mm-hmm. them and they don't like it. And I'm like, that's brilliant. Like, they're really genuinely terrifying characters. And I love that Magrat's the one that kind of gets to give them their comeuppance. <laughs> yeah. Like, she finally... And she's like, as she's the wet hen, she's more or less useless for the entire book. But then she has that wonderful moment. Like, she doesn't really serve the story that well at all. I personally, I think, I, you can argue with me if you want. Like, I feel like you're going to argue with me on that one. But you do engage with her a lot because you can see her developing, you mm-hmm. know? So it's it just it's very, very satisfying when, like, she just kind of hits out with these people. And it has nothing to do with this, like, you know, finding yourself in foreign parts, martial arts stuff. It's just you because... I, they had that great line, what was it, At, earlier in the book, they described her as a small furry animal. Yeah. And then he's like, uh, sometimes the small fur, furry animal is a mongoose. <laughs> and I'm like, that's really good. Yeah, like it's, she's actually got a bit of bite to her. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I think like given as well the frustrations we um uh, more myself myself and Rose expressed about Rincewind, where you by the end of um like Life Fantastic, you think he may develop, or he seems to be resolute in his intentions to become a proper wizard, and in sorcery he's just pressed the reset button and he's back mm. to where he was. Yeah, and yeah. to a certain extent, he's there in Eric as well. Like he's a bit more um. Uh, cynical or like deadpan snarker rather than just terrified and screaming the whole time uh, but see, seeing McGrath in light of him makes me appreciate what's done with her all the more because she does begin as this not coward but this ineffective wet hen and develop into something more over the course of the uh, three books um, well, obviously she features a bit in Masquerade and then Carpenter Gellum but I think like her you know her yeah this, this is her arc it's like a trilogy that kind of focuses on her Becoming from wet hen to the queen, essentially. Yeah. So yeah. So we spoilers. About sorry, we talked about. If you don't know, <laughs> fuck off. Uh, I we, do have to say we, though, I think I really, really like. Um, I, I think we just should take a moment just to focus on, uh, because the first thing I said when we were talking about this is such a great romp. The chemistry between the three witches yeah. is utterly phenomenal. Like I think it's, I I I, th- I think it's probably like. It, for a couple of central characters, it's possibly the best in the entire series. Like because whereas we often talk about the Gar series being great, it's often simply Vines. It's not the way he interacts with other people. It's just his inner monologue. But with the witches, like it's just they bounce off each other so incredibly well. And the great thing is, one thing I really really enjoy about the entire witches saga is there's almost always a moment where two of the witches go off to kind of discuss the third witch. And, like, they can do that, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, Magrat and uh, Granny Weatherwax, Weatherwax sorry, can go off and be like, Nanny Og is, like, a, you know, an old woman who likes getting drunk and, you know, uh, like, everyone has something they can relate to, you know? Like, yeah. She likes going off getting drunk and making inappropriate comments. And then, like, uh, Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og can go off and be like, young, young witches, like, they don't understand their elders, yada, yada, yada. And then, like, Magrat and Nanny Og can go off and say, what's going on with Granny Weatherwax? This, like, you know, person who can do anything like trying to figure you know they all have chemistry individually as well as a group which I think is like really really phenomenal and a real strength of this book it really shines in this one far more so than in uh, uh, Weird Sisters because they don't really have as much opportunities just to be together because they need to progress the story Mm -hmm. absolutely I think one big difference is that in the Garrett's books while Vimes is always the main character the other characters of the city watch even though they're they're all quite well fleshed out they have like it varies from book to book as to how uh, prominent they are mm. so you know if you're getting a guards book you know you're getting violence but you don't always know how much she'll be interacting with colin or nobby or carrot or anyone mm. or detritus or cheery or anyone like that you know it, it varies on and on so you get these different mixes and I mean that's wonderful at the strength in itself occasionally you're kind of left thinking I wish I had seen more of Angua in this book or mm. I wish I had seen more of Detritus uh, whereas in the witch books you know you're always going to get well uh, until um, Agnes kind of takes McGrath's place you know you're going to get a lot of McGrath Nanny and Granny mm. and then mm. all of them interacting in a way that would be impossible to imagine happening without them um, so yeah the, like the chemistry is great and wonderfully summed up by that Wizard of Oz parody where they're walking along in a hoof and <laughs> Granny says what some people need is, is a bit more brain uh, <laughs> about McGrath says McGrath says what some people need is a lot more heart and now he's like what I need is a drink <laughs> um, and we talked about McGrath and we talked about Granny and uh, I want to talk about Nanny because yes. she might be one of my like my 
I know, top five favorite Discworld characters who are to make one. She's essentially like an amalgamum of all of my female like aunties and grannies on the <laughs> side, but kind of all mixed together and heightened like mm. uh, up to eleven. Uh, and I, I sort of love her for all that. <laughs> I have to say, in in this book in particular, she absolutely shines. Like yeah. she, it, like this is, I almost. In a way, even though uh, the story seems to center on Granny Weatherwax, I feel like this was a book written for Nanny Og because, like, it's one thing to have, um, you know, this old woman who, like, you know, makes inappropriate jokes, but, like, she's in a small village where she knows everybody. It's a comfort zone. Throwing her out into the world and let her experiencing all these things and pretending she knows, like, things about other people's customs and the language, it's glorious to read. Like, it's just really, really fantastic. Like, um... Like I love the fact that uh, she gets her hand on some absinthe and tricks Granny Weatherwax <laughs> yeah. and Magra to drink like loads of it. It's just like fine and uh, just like I don't know what it is. Like uh, <laughs> one line that always makes me laugh. It's so simplistic, but it's great. It's when she gets the um, the guards drunk like oh, near yeah. the end, and she goes like up your eye, well, you know, or here's mud at your bottom, or something yeah, like yeah. just really like generic. I don't know what that means, but it sounds vaguely dirty. <laughs> like, oh, it's meant to be a. Uh... Um, bottoms up mud in your eye or that's it or two like old fashioned kind of oh, yeah. things to say when you're drinking but I just love the idea that she's so ingratiating she's a complete stranger who walks into these guards when they're meant to be on jobs like here's a drink <laughs> and, and very quickly you know, like, they're willing to even though you know they must know how uh, uh, like how severe and how terrifying Lily is they're still like oh yeah let's let's have a drink with this old woman and you know the great thing about it is and this is coming back to the chemistry again is like if you were to separate Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax, like, put them into separate books, I don't think she'd be nearly as effective. I think the reason no. that she's so powerful here is because she's the perfect antithesis of like Granny Weatherwax. And it's great because we've often talked about Granny Weatherwax and what a great character she is. But weirdly enough, I don't think we've ever had a good conversation about how great Nanny Og is. And she is. She's like terrific character. Yeah. Um, and, and she understands Granny Weatherwax so well. And I think that's part of it. Like when, uh, mm. when McGrath is complaining to Nanny and she says something about Granny like oh I'm not saying she's not a nice person and Nanny says I am you <laughs> yeah, have to go I know very far find anyone nastier than Esme and yet she's her best friend but she's you know she knows her that well and I love the part too when she goes and sees Mrs. Gogol in the tent mm. and Mrs. Pleasant leads her there and you have those like those two those different sides of her where she's just in the kitchen making friends with Mrs. Pleasant in a way that like neither McGrath or McGrath or Granny would be able to do to find yeah. out subtle information. Just, you know, eating away, freeloading on the drink and the food. And then Mrs. Pleasant brings her and leaves her and she instantly is very sharp and is thinking, She brought me here but she wants she went away. She wants me to see something. And when she goes in and sees Mrs. Gogol in the tent and um uh she's speaking to her and she can't see her and then she just concentrates and knows her name yeah. I love I love the the ambiguity uh, of how magic works and how actually mm. powerful any of them are in that way like yeah because yeah. it's it, it's like it's it's a real less is more type thing you know um it, it a, a comparison that pops into my head as weird as it seems is have you seen Rise of Planet of the Apes uh, the first of the new oh yes yeah, yeah. the first one yeah well, well you know how spoilers uh in that film like for so much of it it's it's just quite normal film about this guy whose dad has alzheimer's he's experimenting on the chimp he has so and and it built up such a kind of just impression of reality or at least of, of film reality going mm. back to moving pictures and hyper reality and so on 
that when Caesar the ape actually just talks when he shouts no, yeah, it's an incredible moment because it it, it carries the weight of um you know of, of seeing this happen in a normal world. Whereas like in you know the say the original Planet of the Apes. Your uh, Trump has to drop down. The eggs are talking. The eggs have a civilization. So none of the small stuff counts. It's more in the big. And I feel like that's something similar here where because the witches, much to my grat's chagrin, aren't throwing a load of magic around. And because Nanny mm. in particular is just so down to air exactly, and yeah. seemingly benign that when she just has this unexplained moment where she can, I don't know, like read Mrs. Gogol's mind or just pull information out of the air and find out what her name is, it seems really impressive. You know, much more so than like if you saw someone do that in a typical fantasy novel, it would be like, like, oh, oh whatever. Fine. People were throwing fireballs two pages yeah, ago, exactly, so yeah. what's the big deal? But. And actually, there's another bit that that I really like as well. Like, I, and I, I personally, I find it more impressive, even though it's like more flippant. Is when uh, you know they're in the bar and someone accidentally falls over and spills drink down Nanny Og's back, mm-hmm. and she just kind of mutters something, and then the guy goes to drink and he's like absolutely horrified and runs away and like again like Magrat just goes what did you you know do to his drinks oh I'll tell you when you're older it's like again it's ambiguous it's very easy to forget that uh, Nanny Og is a witch yeah like very because she is very much like whereas Granny Weatherwax Granny Weatherwax I keep mispronouncing her name she often acts if not exactly like a witch but similar to how you would expect a witch to act Mm -hmm. Nanny Og complete opposite so um, yeah it is very satisfying when you see that every now and then a sliver of her actual power uh, even though a lot of that simply comes from like having a wide extended family and being able to you know uh, place herself anywhere and be like comfortable but like you know when she actually has magic behind her that's a big deal I, I love her postcards to home as well. oh yeah <laughs> I, I only realised recently that uh, when she writes when their Lilith puts them in the dungeon and she writes like uh, dear Jason and everyone, your old mum, what, uh, what a turn up for the books, your old mum in prison again. Yeah. <laughs> it's referring to Weird Sisters, where she was also jailed. Oh, yeah. But I like to think that this is just something yeah. that's happened to her before. You know, like she's just writing and it looks so casually like, here I am in prison again. I actually, I love the way that letter continues. Like, here's a picture of the jail. I put an X where we are, which is inside. <laughs> All because a girl who doesn't want to marry a prince. It was actually a duck. It was actually a frog. And I can't say I blame her. We don't want descendants that end up in jam jars. Actually, um, that's an interesting thing that I'm going to bring up to you now. Um, what would you think about if, if I suggested the idea of some of the transmorgified animals? Is that a word? Uh, transfigured animals, we'll say. We'll use Harry Potter lingo. Um, about some of them being almost spirit animals to some of the main players in the book. I not something I hadn't thought about before, so go on. Uh, I just found that, that like for a lot of the animals that were there, I found certain parallels there. Now this is a little bit like you know flimsy. So I, I if you were to say no, that's bull, that's terrible, that's stupid, I would completely understand. But where it jumped out for me first of all was with the wolf, and I found it really interesting the way that Granny Weatherwax would describe him, saying like he does, he can't be a wolf, but he can't be a person either. He doesn't really fit into society. And I found that really interesting because I thought that's a little bit like what Granny Weatherwax is like. Mm-hmm. She can't just be a normal person, but she doesn't want to be this basically what Lily is, you know, this like almost like ruler kind of like does whatever she wants sort of thing. She's kind of stuck in between and maybe she finds it kind of frustrating. And this definitely comes out like when she's arguing with Magrat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this, now, this is just like something that jumped out at me. I don't know if there's too much to this, but... 
Similarly, I also found it really interesting that uh, the way when Grebo becomes a human and it's a little bit, it, it is kind of like, you know, Nanny Ogin that like there's no significance behind it except for Grebo. When you think about it, there isn't really much of a reason for Grebo to become a human except that's something we'd really like yeah. to see, yeah. you know? And it is just a case of uh, Nanny Ogs having loads of fun while traveling and on holiday and now Grebo's doing the same again. Like he's kind of, and because he is her pet, it would make sense like for that to be the her spirit animal mm-hmm. so to speak I feel like that's a really lame way of putting he, it but yeah, it's he, the best I he have he eats and he fights and he yeah, <laughs> yeah you know you know the other word I was going to say beginning with <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> um, yeah it's, it's, uh, that's, that's very like nanny in a lot of ways yeah and then um, I also like I was the next one that I came up with was Lilith and of course it was the snakes mm-hmm. because you know they're just like this almost predatory kind of they just want what they want and that's it and that's very simplistic we'll leave it there but the most interesting one I found was Magrat and the comparison I made was with the duck or the duke or okay. however you pronounce him and that might when well, you might initially think well no that's odd because the duke is this horrible slimy creature sort of thing but if you think about it this way when we first come across the duck and he's talking to Lily he's this kind of whingy kind of you know why can't you just make it happen mm-hmm. you know what's going on but then Magrat has this arc where she kind of uh, disregards her wet end persona becomes a little bit more assertive and she literally re- um, you know uh, what's the word I'm looking for uh, rejects the duke at, at the dance and she's literally like you know no yeah. oh no no not doing that no go away so it's kind of like she kind of that was her spirit animal so to speak and she kind of like ah oh, now yeah, we're um, I hadn't thought of that at all but now that you're saying it I feel like there, there is there could be something there where as well she um, she uh, turns down the chance it said at the start of this to marry Varence, marry the king obviously she ends up doing that anyway but like <clears throat> for this book at least um, and I, one of the slightly unsatisfying things I found was that they don't go into a huge amount of detail about that about like yeah. you know mm. like what other than just a general talk of her not wanting to be a sex object nobody wants but in any case Magrat a sex object yeah, but <laughs> I don't even know what a sex object is yeah. I'm proud to say <laughs> I don't even know what it is uh, but but she, so she rejects this chance to have kind of her life handed to her in a platter whereas that's what the the prince the duck is waiting around for mm. you know he's just waiting around for the, the princess to kiss him and then he'll be grand. And she's not waiting around for Varence to kiss her. And equally, she kicks back against Granny Weatherox, bullying people a lot. Whereas Dadok is so submissive to Lilith and is just happy to let her run his life for the better. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, sort of, it's interesting. There, is, like, there are parallels there, all right. It's again, it's not something that I think is like, you know, really strongly, let's do this. But it's there. It's, uh, for me, it particularly stuck out with the wolf aspect, you know, mm-hmm. like... Um, it's it's just interesting that like Granny Weatherwax looks at as being in a state of absolute agony and like she wants to do anything for it but she can't. Whereas for me it's kind of a case of that um I feel like she feels that's kind of the driving force for Granny. She feels that this is something she has to confront. She has to be able to be comfortable with who she is, which is I think why she uh, approaches or tries to I don't know, stop Lily, I suppose, because I, I, I don't know it's it's um I, I feel like her motivation for it is a little off in this one um, her motivation for trying to stop Lily yeah I mean it's just a very simple case of because it's right and 
if we're actually, if we're going to talk about this now, I'm going to bring up the main issue that I had with this book is I feel Lil- Lily's characterization in this book isn't the best. Yeah. I really, I, I it just, she's built up as this like, you know, oh my God, she's, you know, Granny Weatherwax's twin sister. She's going to be this incredible antagonist, almost impossible to be. And then at the end of it, it's, it's almost standard. Like it's, it feels about as weighty as the end of, uh, you know, weird sisters when they took on the, uh, the Duke and the Duchess. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, it felt anticlimactic. I felt like there could have been a lot more to that. Um, she just comes across as, she doesn't come across as, as smart as Granny Weatherwax at any point. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, well, I, I, I really love the idea of the difference between them coming down to that uh, semi-identical mirror encounter with Death when Death says, yeah. you've got to find the one that's real and you know Lily's going to be stuck there forever whereas Granny is down to earth and rooted in her community and has the, you know has the sense where she can instantly find out what the real or important thing is mm. um, but I think what, what you're saying about Granny's motivation kind of seeing a bit off I buy the idea of her saying about like she hated things that made pe- people anything less than what they were and turned them into things and the prescriptiveness of stories I really buy that you know that is something she rails against mm. but the, the one thing that I was left a bit um uh, ambivalent or confused about was the idea of between like the good evil binary which at first the book seems to set up to be like like it's uh, undercutting it where you know Lily obviously thinks she's the good one mm. and she clearly isn't like a good person in any way and McGrath sort of has this naive belief where she's like oh no we're the good ones we're going to win or this won't be wrong if we do it because we're good mm. but you know so it seems to be initially aiming towards you know deconstructing all of that uh, and it very much does so in the, in the character of Mrs. Gogol who I'll get to in a bit who like is very ambiguously but like vividly positioned between good mm. and evil in the kind of confrontation of the story but then granny says that thing to lily about when you went i had to be the good one and yeah. i love that confrontation about like i'm gonna give you the trashing our man never did but i'm also like I, I don't know why granny would feel beholden to that and i didn't think of for all of that she can be quite in some ways quite simple and similar to what Pratchett says about carrot simple's not stupid you know yeah but she can be quite simple and very stubborn I, I don't really buy that she would have this Manichaean good evil binary you know where it's like mm. well you're bad so now I ha- I'm stuck being good um, I get the like I, I, I like the idea of her sort of being a good enough person to realise what a bad person she is and how bad she could be and that way our nanny says about her you know you'll have to go a long way to find something nastier than Esme and if she is always aware of I could actually be really horrible. I know mm. I've got it in me. And Vimes has something similar to him as well that comes up in a lot of other books and that she's constantly policing this in herself and that it does make her a bit bitter at times because it probably seems like, God, it would be a lot easier and a lot more fun mm. to be bad. But I don't I don't get that this would be a sort of external, you know, imposition on her where it's like, yeah. you are bad, so ergo, I have to be good. I, I see it as in more like deep down on some level she knows she has strong feelings on what's right and what's good but it just doesn't always appeal to her and she has to force herself to do it yeah. so I, I, I'm sort of left confused as to like what the book and what Pratchett's standing was and that whole idea of like the good one and the bad one and mm. that being some kind of 
external positioning that's there and people are going to slot into those qualities as opposed to being just complete fallacies in the first place. Yeah, like my main issue is that Granny Weatherwax is a character who I would have been quite happy if we never delved into her backstory and she was just a character who was. But because it dang- this book dangles it in front of us and then it doesn't, pointedly doesn't, well, not pointedly, but it doesn't go into enough detail to satisfy at all. So, you know, it was a very in-the-middle job. Like, if it had leaned either way, mm-hmm. I would have been very satisfied. But it doesn't. It goes just, like, just in between. So it's just, like, I really... I either wish that you hadn't discussed her childhood at all and left her as this almost mysterious character who you're trying to work out and imagine what her life was, or you properly explained it, you know? Like, why is it that... Because, as you said, I don't really buy it either. Like, I don't really see how her leaving would really... And it's funny because you kind of expect Granny Weatherwax to be the one to leave a family, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean... That she would she'd be frustrated with, with like, like, a parent. Yeah, so. like, you can't see her, like, in an institution like that. It just doesn't really uh, gel. But maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe it wasn't the... Fa- like, just... It was just the fact that she left, and maybe she just... She couldn't leave a family if someone else had already left her, because then she'd be almost copying or something and she wouldn't be wanting to be someone who followed in someone's footsteps she's always kind of the spearhead of everything yeah or maybe it means that it's a duty thing like oh you had abandoned our family and our you know our uh, community in Lankara so I had to be there but the way it's uh, said is really like it is some just you know capital G good versus Mm. capital B bad it Um, strikes me as something that felt really good to write at that point that didn't necessarily, you know, it, mm-hmm. it it felt like it was something good to write at that point because that would be a very dramatic thing to say. Yeah. And, um, like, I, I don't begrudge it because I do read it and think, wow, it's effective, but it's only when you take it apart you realise it's kind of flawed. Yeah, yeah, I just feel like the book doesn't touch on it, uh, doesn't tease it out enough that, like, it ends up feeling like, it ends up feeling like Granny, as probably the book's kind of protagonist, is adhering to a much simpler view of morality than the rest of the book seems to be talking about a lot. Exactly. Which feels very yeah. weird and you know, um I, I also I think it's kind of odd that when she talks about Lily being wanton and Lily like having it off with, with men and pe- people's dads calling her out to complain, that sits sort of oddly with the fact mm. that we know that Granny is so like that she's we find out in Lords and Ladies that she's a is still a virgin and she, she's very much kind of it's like comically prudish at points in this. Um and like the book seems to often like poke fun at that and certainly positions are alongside Nanny Og who is anything but prudish <laughs> so it doesn't you know make a sort of sexual binary of like oh virgin good you know whore bad yeah yeah um, that, that kind of uh, dichotomy but like but it still like makes it part of the opposition between Granny and Lily uh, between like Esme and Lily that you know oh yeah, Lily, whatever, was like going off, having it off with fellas, and Esme never did, and now Esme's the good one, and she's kind of, I, I suppose I know, maybe that's part of explaining why she's bit, maybe she, maybe she thinks of that as something she couldn't do because she was good, you know, that, yeah, like, in her head, the, Lily being bad in the way that she, you know, kills people, and, uh, you know, rules people's lives, has become blurred with, like, dad's complaining about Lily having it off with fellas when she was young so it all just becomes like like all of that's bad and she's mm. got to be the opposite of all of that and that's kind of tragic in a way because then it means she denies herself a certain amount of happiness yeah. but, but then we don't really get that explored in this book until 
we, we get it a bit Lords and Ladies with her, like imagining her, the different life that she might have led had she settled down with Riccoli and, yeah. and so on. But um, for this book, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of oddly. It is a bit jarring. And like another bit that really uh, sticks out to me, and it, it, it's again, it comes down to how, you see, because uh, they set Lilith up as like the mirror image of Esmeralda, and it's always like, I always feel that she should be intelligent. She should approach things intelligently, but it just doesn't feel like she does. And it stands out in particular when uh, she starts throwing fireballs at Mr. Saturday. Yeah. And uh, Esmeralda goes, you know, or Granny Rodewax goes, like, oh, she tried it. She knows it doesn't work, and now she's doing it again. And like, I'm like, yeah, you're right. I mean, that is something, you know, a standard, typical, you know, uh, story villain would yeah. do. But it's not something you'd expect someone with the same intelligence or at least similar intelligence to Granny Weatherwax to do. You're like, yeah, obviously you wouldn't do that. So it just, yeah, it sticks yeah. out to me there. Although maybe that's a commentary on her being wrapped up in the story. You know, she's becoming a cartoonish villain. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I think there is something there where she has a different role in the story than she thinks she does. You know, she, mm. like her role in the story is of the, you know, the kind of uh, wicked witch or sorceress that... Uh, there's got to be vanquished uh, the city could be a resort role but she doesn't think she's playing yeah. that role so she's unaware of when she does those cliched villain things it's possible, but, but yeah, yeah it does sort of make her lacking as any kind of a an equal to um, to Esme whereas throughout the, the book they do do like build you know building up the confrontation between them like when mm. uh, I love that bit in Mrs. Gogol's shack when uh, Mrs. Gogol like makes her reveal who it is like she's like you know, her who's been ruling this city, her who looks at mirrors, her who Mistress Weatherwax knows all about. And mm-hmm. then he looks like, what? And, you know, Granny Weatherwax has to kind of explode and explain <laughs> that she's her sister. Um, yeah, and then it, it, other than that, like that, that bit in the mirror at the end is lovely. Um, and I also love that uh, difference between when she says, do you know the symbology of the broomstick? And Granny's like, is this something to do with maples? Things like that. Don't care. Um, <laughs> and again, it... it the difference between them is underlined very well, and I love that. But yeah, at the same time, I I do agree with you somewhat. And I think that even though they're meant to be uh, very different, that that you're ultimately meant to come out seeing that, like you know, Granny is kind of the I suppose the wiser one. It would you still feel like more could be done to make Lily seem like as uh, formidable and coldly intelligent as Granny in, in mm. other ways. Actually, um, can I just uh, yeah. one very quick side note there near the very very start where. Um uh, Desiderata is that how you pronounce her name? Desiderata Des- yeah Desiderata when she's um, dying and she's talking to death and uh, she's talking about how what was it uh, weatherwaxes don't know how to lose mm-hmm. and she, before that she says it has to it, it's, I think it's, it's oddly phrased now I'd actually like to check this with you to see if you have the same impression of it where she says it's got to be all three all three of the witches have to go there and then there's a beat and she says something like weather waxes don't know how to lose. But then she's like, but one of them's going to have to learn the way that read. I found slightly confusing because when I read it, I'm like, one of them's going to have to lose. She meant one of the witches, not one weather wax. Like, um, like it, it is revealed very, very shortly afterwards, but like, I sort of feel the way that's written, uh, it was going to be a twist ending that, uh, Lily was actually um, Granny Weatherwax's sister. Yeah. Because yeah. It, it feels like slightly misleading. Like, if you look at it, you're like, oh no, obviously, if you read that normally, yes, you can see that he means one Weatherwax is mm-hmm. going to have to learn to lose. 
But um, I don't know, it just feels like slightly misleading that I think maybe that was a possibility at one point. Yeah, I do feel at times like it was meant to be more ambiguous than, than it was. Mm. Um, Even the fact that her name was Lilith instead of Lily. You know, yeah, and, and she says, well, like like it's Lilith de Tempskar, which is like a French literal translation of Butterwax. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, wouldn't, unless you know French, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't jump out at you. But yet other bits lean on the... Um, the come you know the the hint much more uh, much more directly to the point where you know when when the reveal comes i i i can't remember reading it the first time whether i was shocked but i don't mm. think it would shock many people no. i also feel like there's the odd bit that hints as if when they're going through and seeing all this odd fairy tale behavior going on and making the black alice comparisons like they think granny weatherwax might have a role in it but then it's never it never really comes back to and i feel like that just that whole idea of the reveal of Lily being Granny's sister and so on, it feels like that, that could be a little more disciplined, that you commit to one thing. You either commit to the shock of, like, oh, it's her sister, or you get, like, much more ambiguous about, you know, uh, like, we don't even know who it is in Genoa. And, oh, well, Granny's been acting strangely. Maybe Granny has something to do with it. No, it's another Weatherwax. As it is, I feel like mm. the, the sort of mystery element of it, you know, is bounced around... Um, and not as well constructed as it could be. Yeah. No, I don't think it's a huge thing because it's it's not like I, I don't feel like it's a big part of the novel. Like you're having too much fun mm. uh, reading all of that those romp around the foreign countries and the you know just the general atmosphere building towards something's gonna go down in Genoa is enough to um, to kind of build suspense. And actually, but but, but it does feel a little I don't know sloppy is too harsh or but certainly not as. Well, not as well put together, put together yeah, as could yeah. be, yeah. And actually, just one slight thing. One thing that I do really enjoy about uh, just what you were saying about something's going to go down in Genoa is I love how Death sporadically shows up throughout the novel, yeah. like as if he's traveling with the witches. I love that. Like, I just think it's really, it's a great thing because, like, oh, someone's going to die. And actually, it's really good because if I remember right, it is it's Mister Saturday who dies, and it's like mm-hmm. that's one of the best ways you can pull the rug out with somebody ever the person who dies is the person who's already, already dead, dead. Yeah. that's fantastic <laughs> it's just great and actually another thing that I, I always bring it back to death because I love the way he's like represented here but I love when um, he's going up the tower and uh, Nanny and Magrat back away and says it's a damn good mask he had there and they both kind of look at each other yeah. And Mag- but I just love the line that Magrat says oh we better get up there quick and he starts running and then Nanny Og who is much wider says I think we should walk like well, whatever happened going, has happened yeah, you know so you might death. <laughs> there's yeah, no point yeah. in like you know exerting yourself I, uh, I, I love that uh, we, we, we've talked a lot I haven't talked a lot in detail about Genoa which I think is yeah. one of the best settings he came up with in this world and I feel like it's almost a pity you don't see a post which is abroad Ella rule Genoa too it's like I mean it's essentially Disneyland meets New Orleans mm. um, with all the, the voodoo yeah, aspect of it heightened. Uh, and it, yeah, it's just, it's, it's excellent. It's so atmospheric, like the whole divide between the white, pristine city and the, the swamp shacks is so good. Uh, the, the part at the end when uh, Mrs. Gogol sort of summons the power of the swamp behind Saturday is excellent. Yeah. Just, they've done such a good, he's done such a good job building up the idea of Genoa and how the city works and voodoo that it's this like relatively like it's it's an element of the plot that's not directly explored a whole amount and then when he just pulls it out as now Saturday is the power of the swamp behind him and he's incredibly powerful it doesn't feel like a day you say machina because 
the atmosphere, the kind of voodoo magic atmosphere of Genoa has been built up enough exactly, that you know yeah. it's going to pay off in some way. Um, I, I, as lame as Lily throwing the fireballs that Saturday seemed, I, I, I do love to uh, no man, there ain't no way to kill a dead man. Yeah, and just that the fact yeah. that like you might as well try and like you know destroy the world, like you know mm-hmm. that whole thing, like it's great. Um, one thing I do like about Genoa is, well, first of all, I. I think there is an issue with the fact that we only really arrive there like properly in like, the last third of the book, mm-hmm. which like it, it should be explored. But, like, I honestly think you could do, if not the vast, if not the entire book, at least the vast majority of the book could be like uh, taking place in Genua. But one thing that I think is very, very clever is like the world building he, um, he puts in place there. A lot of that is down to Gribo going around just like you yeah, know having yeah. fun and like it's it's great because it's a dual purpose on the one hand you get to have the fun idea of Gribo being a person and going around and like the hijinks to get up to which is just terrific but also like it serves the actual like atmosphere of the book like you get um, I feel like you get the, some of the best sense of um, Genua the town mm-hmm. when Gribo is going around because like it is like you know, it doesn't need to advance the story. It's for the most part, it's just there to kind of you know have a bit of fun. But you know, it sets the tone of the place as well. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. I I got that in particular when he's like stopping the carriage and you know he's uh, <laughs> just attacking like five people like no problem. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> actually, that great moment when uh, his he pops his claws out. It's like ah, finally something that still works because he's complaining about like his uh, spine not working the same way. Yeah, all that sort of thing. <laughs> But uh, yeah, yeah, genuine. It's all uh, that like, uh, you don't see a New Orleans esque setting dealt with in in, in fantasy uh, mm. a, a huge amount, and um, uh, it's it, it's so well done, and the, the divide between the two Genoas forms a kind of relatively subtle part of what like the book's all about, and the prescriptiveness of stories yeah. overriding the kind of authentic but seemingly unattractive or unconventional actual real core to things that will eventually just you know break through this veneer of stories like weeds popping up through a pavement yeah. and make themselves known that's a great line uh, <laughs> thank you uh, and and Mrs. Gogol is a huge part of that like I, I think mm. like, like every the I, I love all of the encounters she has with Nanny and Granny because they just crackle because of She's clearly this formidable figure and a powerful witch in her own right, but her position is so ambiguous throughout it that, like, mm. I mean, Granny actually says at one point, like, I wish I knew where she stood, or, you yeah. know. Uh, I think it's about, like, it, he's, it's, it's, they see Legba, and Nanny says that's Mrs. Gogol's cockerel, and, and she says something like, oh, like, he's more than a cockerel, but I wish I knew what. And, um, because they're trying to figure it out but there's that respect there there's like all their you know um, encounters are kind of crackling between and and she really tempers this either extreme of like Lilith the witch ruling the city versus Nanny the witch who is completely against the idea of witches ruling but like Nanny is or not Nanny sir Granny (laughs) um, is you know know, like she's not from Genoa so it's easy for her to come in uh, you know and just be like okay Lilith shouldn't rule here I'm gonna you know whatever I'm gonna get rid of her and then whatever happens happens see ya you know and like not have to kind of clean up the mess Mm. that's been made and Mrs. Gogol has a a place in Genoa and a vested interest there so like her idea to you know clearly she wants a lot of influence and ruling afterwards through Ella 
seems sinister but not entirely unreasonable given exactly, that you're thinking yeah. if she worked so hard to free the city from Lilith she of course she would want to play a role in seeing what you know what happens to it afterwards and like Granny she just doesn't have the luxury of going up home you know mm. this is her home um, it's funny because you actually I mean any every single time I, I read this book I always feel that moment where Granny Weatherwax and Mrs. Gogol kind of have their like showdown I'm always more emotionally invested in Mrs. Gogol, but it makes logical sense to go with like Granny Weatherwax because what she says does yeah. make sense. Like she, she's um, divorced from the emotion that Mrs. Gogol has. Like you know, you know, you killed my husband. You know, you, all you've done. Mm-hmm. Like you, you want to be on her side. You want like her sense of justice, but Granny Weatherwax, being like the cold, like logical-minded person that she is, just like lays the truth down bare. Says no, you can't do that because then we're just back to square one. You know, you'll become like not the new Lilith, but something close. Yeah. You know, so yeah, it's it's great. Like it's a really it's a great that's a really good parallel actually. Like if Mrs. Gogol's a great character to throw into mm-hmm. that because it'd be far too simplistic if it was just like uh, uh, Granny Weatherwax and uh, Lilith. It just and like as we said, like. It, She's not really Lilith isn't as well developed as she could be. So, but like that kind of balances a little bit. Mrs. Mm-hmm. Gogol's like, yeah, I mean that, that that confrontation with them. I think like that might be the maybe the high point of the book. The plunging Granny mm-hmm. plunging her arm into the fire and it's setting it's the the voodoo doll light, which is a, a wonderfully clever way of of defeating her and and the way she reacts to when Mrs. Gogol's like, I you know I can do the heart next, and she just sort of says, I know you can't. Like I you know. I'm not. I'm not going on because I doubt your strength or your, you know, your force or your passion about this. But despite all that, this still means more to me. You know, mm. um, yeah, it's 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 tremendous, uh, and, and it is like the you know a kind of moment where, like, I, ever after, even more so than freezing a kingdom in time for seventy years and mm. in uh, in Weird Sisters, you feel like wow, Granny Weatherwax don't want to mess with her. No. Yeah. Actually, but, um, just, how as like in terms of just I'm I'm a stickler or uh, for fantasy names. I've got uh, you know notebook pages just full of names I've come up with that I've had to use sometimes. Erzuli Gogol is one of the best yeah. fantasy <laughs> names for a voodoo woman. It's pretty class. I've ever heard. It's amazing. It's a great. It's a great. Like um, it definitely gives you a great idea of like the kind of character she is just from the sound of it alone. It's excellent. Mm-hmm. Absolutely excellent. Um, one side thing actually I just want to bring up again is I absolutely love the blase like approach Terry Pratchett takes to like a race in this one like it sums up I think we brought this up before and like we came to the conclusion that he basically comes out and says in this one in he that, does yeah yeah like yeah. Uh, I love just with the fact that Nanny Ogre is like uh, she describes Mrs. Pleasant for ages and then there's just like one sentence she was also the first black person yeah. that, like she had ever seen it's like oh wow okay and then it goes on to say like oh yeah speciesism was like much bigger deal than actual like racism it's black, like black and white team up and gang up on green yeah exactly <laughs> but like the great thing is about that is like it's a very simple almost throwaway paragraph but it very neatly summarizes like Terry Pratchett's like whole idea like he just he's not interested in tackling race at all in his books but it will be interesting when we come to Jingo because that that does have uh, like uh, yeah okay yeah I'll, I'll, I'll give you that Jingo it was 96 it was written but like it, it feels very um uh, for, for sci-fi given that, like you know Islamophobia and things like that today um 
But I yeah, it's, it, it'll be interesting reading it in order and whether that imposition of like racial tensions in Jingo feels out of place in the Discworld or whether it's something that's pulled off. Like I have a lot of good memories of reading Jingo and remember enjoying it, but reading it in disorder and having to think about it at a you know, I suppose with more effort the way I, I do for the, the podcast definitely gives me a different perspective on things. So I'm tentatively looking forward to seeing how I feel. And mm. and I thought that well, I thought that immediately when I read that line. I, I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. But then he does mm. go mm. back to race, they'll see. But um, I feel like they, in Jingo, just jumping ahead, and just like at a guess because I'll need to read it again to fully get the same sense. But I always feel that when he approaches like race and the way he does there, it's in an almost kind of, casual mocking way like he's kind of poking fun at the way like we differentiate ourselves and like races and stuff like it never it never it never feels hateful I mean, I think we say that like no no I, but I, I don't mean that's the point I just mean that like he sets up in this as if the idea of racism as we know it into this world wouldn't even cross anyone's mind because mm. of the different species but yet in Jingo like he obviously is he's hugely critiquing jingoism and xenophobia and how yeah, yeah. the kind of contradictions they're they're founded on but at the same time he's showing that it's there that it's this force and you know in, in the discord this prejudice that exists mm-hmm. in a way that he disavows in this book and it will just be interesting once we get there whether and i think that's like the 20th 21st 19th book or something mm-hmm. whether at that point it, it feels really odd having read all of the others in order to suddenly deal with race you yeah know? yeah or or whether it feels more uh, natural and, and well pulled off one, one more thing is that i feel like there's a a, tr- a tread in this book of um liminality of, of things of the idea of like things being in between or on the edge in a way that's really significant like you have obviously the the we talked about the, the animals being transformed like the wolf and the snakes and how on and with the, the wolf it really dwells on how this is a you know, almost a form of, of torture and the idea of it be- mm. being between wolf and man is horrible. Um, and, and like, the idea of the, the prince being between man and frog makes him seem really horrible. Like, Nanny is horrified by the idea that he uh, might be, like, touching or doing anything with McGrath. Um, and and you, you talk about how unsettling the, the snake sisters were. We also have the mirrors and the, uh, the idea that the kind of they stretch yourself out so that you don't know what's real anymore mm. and what's not and when granny is going up to confront Lilith at the end it talks about the, uh, how people always think a full moon is significant but really a half moon is more significant because it's it's at the in-between stage mm. between bright and dark and then there's granny's discomfort around zombies uh, at first she yeah, yeah she's so uncomfortable yeah. around Baron Saturday which is funny it, it echoes like Vimes is uncomfortable around vampires and it mm. seems to be a recurring thing with Pratchett uh, protagonists that they have this or at least the recurring ones that you know they have these these lines that they don't across and um, I, I loved a bit too where with Saturday and Granny where Granny um, looks at him and realizes you you need to have a reason to come back and he looks more alive than most people I know yeah. and just sticks out her hand and shakes hands with him uh, and when, when she loses her hat and even though you know a hat is so important to a witch she won't send him, have Mrs. Gogol send him in to get it yeah, because yeah. he might get hurt uh, and again that's her sort of what I was talking about earlier the idea of like her fighting against her her nature you know and that like mm. her first instinct to be like yeah get the hat affect the zombie but she she knows what's right but that idea anyway of, of liminality of like she's uncomfortable around the zombie of being between life and death 
you have all the animals that are between being animal and human uh, the mirrors kind of almost creating a, a liminal sense of self where where the real self begins and the kind of reflection starts is is really uh, confused it all goes through the book and I don't know it was, it, was, it was only something I sort of picked up on quite late in my, my note taking process when I was preparing for this mm-hmm. so just with me saying that the do you, do you have anything to add to that or is that setting off anything there? Because I feel there's something there, but I, I don't know how to articulate it. No, I absolutely agree with you. I think that there is something... I, I feel like what uh, I feel like what Terry Patrick was going for in this case was it was very much in with uh, in line with Granny, Granny Weatherwax's arc in that she was basically... I feel like... Do you know when I described uh, the wolf, how it's in absolute agony like mm-hmm. because it's like living in the middle, in between two things. And I think it's all about Granny coming to terms with the idea of, like, being on the edge, like, not feeling, like, uh, tempted by either side. Like, she doesn't want to be this, you know, standard person. She wants to be respected and, like, you know, she wants to have a position of power. But at the same token, she doesn't want to lean on the other side and basically become Lilith. Mm -hmm. And I think they actually... uh, One thing that I think the book does particularly well is the very, very end of it where uh, they all make the suggestion, why don't we go see the elephant, which is literally over the edge. Yeah. So the at the end of it, like, you know, uh, Granny's like, no, no, we're going to go home. But then they go to see the uh, over the edge on the way back. So it's kind of a case of, it's not so much that um, Granny needs to be on the edge, like always, but she can move from side to side when the occasion calls for it. So like she's saying, yes, let's go home. Let's be like, you know... Uh, properly get back to normal properly integrated into society but she's also but on the way home you know we flew over the edge and saw something amazing you know and like but that was just like a quick sightseeing tour which is kind of like what the entire book is like it's just kind of a you know it's kind of a departure from the norm and then back to normality yeah yeah i think i see what you mean that's like that that liminal thing is like something you can only explore temporarily yeah it's, it's more you, fluid you, yeah you've got to have like an anchor or a or a home like even granny's come you know not so much comfort but acceptance of saturday comes from the idea of oh he's got a reason to be back here which there follows that like he will accomplish that reason and then he will go away whereas the, the kind of tragedy of the animals is that they're stuck in this stage that mm. it isn't like Grebo where he gets this you know holiday as a human and then gets to go back to being a cat mm. you know the animals uh, Lilith uh, tampers with are just stuck thinking they're human or thinking they're animal and so on um, and how yeah like and how awful that is whereas the the and likewise the, the mirrors Lilith uses them for life and uh, you know sort of almost as a kind of like uh, sort of addicted to the, the uh, power they give her whereas the liminal on the edge sense uh, uh, the you know the quote unquote good characters of the book deal with uh, as much as a temporary thing where you have this anchor or sense of home sense of self to return to and actually that's like epitomized in that line that granny weatherwax has very very near the end actually just before Margaret says well i guess there's no place like home and granny weatherwax typically like deconstructing that typical phrase like no there's lots of places like home but there's only one place where you live yeah so it's the idea that like yeah you can go visiting these places you can like bend the rules to like you know fit the situation but when you get right down to it there's one place like home there's one place that settles down to what you are which you know as we saw you know she just points at herself this is the real one you know Mm -hmm. this is me it's not stretched off into affinity like that yeah 
Yeah. I, I also feel like it's a nicely subtle way of showing that her their minds have kind of been opened by travel and that that suspicion of like uh, you know uh, foreign places is somewhat alleviated because she's saying oh yeah there's places all over the world just like Lunker they're not all like you know despite their kind of strange foreign veneer they're still quite the same mm. but this one's where I live so that's that you know that's obviously important for me yeah um, right so did you have anything more to Nope, uh, I think we have covered just about everything Yeah, in well, the world. In, in the whole world, in the world of Wishes Abroad. Well, all that there remains for us to do then is to rank it in our list of the best Discworld books in the world ever or our favourite Discworld books in a very subjective ranking that we'll probably disagree <laughs> on by the time we get to the end of it. Um, I at, have at, at the moment, the, the list stands at 11, so I don't know if I, I, I should... Really, I'll go, okay, in, in ascending order, so from 11 through 1st, it's Eric, Colour of Magic, Sorcery, Equal Rights, The Life Fantastic, Weird Sisters, Moving Pictures, Reaper Man, Top Tree is Mort, Guards Guards, and Pyramids at number one. Uh, so that's how it stands at the moment. Sorry, you were, you were about to say something before I launched into that? Oh, I was just going to say that I have a very firm idea of where it should go on that list. But um, Okay, well, me. yeah, shoot, where's that? For me, it would just... And by a sliver, it would knock Weird Sisters off its place. I'd place it at number five. Okay, so you put it behind Moving Pictures. Yes. Okay, why is that? Well, see, I feel like Moving Pictures... Uh, we disagreed on this in the last one. Like you, you took issue with uh, the characters being somewhat flat, but because it was so thematically rich, I felt like that could be excused. Um, this one, even though uh, I feel like there's some flaws in the pacing, um, I think... As we discussed there, it's got it does actually. I've actually been convinced that there are some great themes behind it, which I didn't think before. But it's just such a great romp. It's one of the most fun novels out of yeah. any of them. And even though it's a bit thin on in some issues, I I think it deserves great applause just for like you know having such a great adventure behind it. So, oh yeah, you you don't have to convince me in any way of its merits. Mm. Like the parts of it, this book I love, I really love. But like I'm aware there's there's definitely some flaws there I said about uh, I can't remember what it was at the start or before we start recording about how it's it's kind of it's like Reaper Man a couple of ways that we said about Reaper Man it was the pacing and the jumping between uh, essentially what's almost like three plots mm. uh, with the wizards Windle and Death and uh, like there's only ever one uh, plot in as much as we're focused on the same characters all the way through here but the divide between the witches travelling to Genoa and what happens in Genoa feels you know very 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 strict and um, that's fair that's like fair. Uh, he does a good job of building the atmosphere where you know as they get closer they begin to see more of the uh you know the impact of Lilith's kind of story craft on mm -hmm. the um on the surrounding uh countryside which which builds up what's happening in Genoa but what happens in Genoa is so effective and wonderful that they sort of wish we would have gotten more of it um mm -hmm. and it, like it feels a little truncated at parts uh, I, I feel like the the part where after McGrath initially meets Ella and uh, who I wish you had seen more of as well mm. uh, and talks talks to her and you know assures her you won't have to go to the ball and then we jump to the three of them executing their plan of how she won't have to go like that jump felt very odd to me I feel like like you know I, I wanted more about them kind of teasing out what their role is here you know mm. like they've been sent uh, to Ziderata saying no she's not meant to marry a prince 
I note her here and they're getting a read for the situation and they met the girl and she says she doesn't want to marry a prince and it would just be interesting to hear them talk about it and say like you know that's like that's a relief she doesn't want to marry him what if they got there and she did but they were you know on instruction to not let her or just like oh she doesn't want to are, are we all sure that's still the right decision now that we're here yeah it probably is what else what else should we do here like we our goal was to stop her from marrying the prince is is there something more going on like clearly you, you know there is at that stage but it would just be interesting to see them talk about it even if part of that talking about it was granny avoiding telling McGrath about mm. you know lily or and if she had plans to do anything else it just feels a very odd jump um that uh, I, I'm sure there's other examples I can think of, be, uh, and I, it's it's mainly part of that's a strength too. Like part of that is because the, those bits, the whole part in Genoa is so good mm. that I just I just want more of it. Um, but part of that is also driven by just the like odd parts where it feels uh, that is more truncated or more rushed than it should be. But um, I would probably put it above moving pictures for all that, just because I think there. In a lot of ways, they're about similar things. They're about the power of belief and the power of storytelling and the idea of the kind of unreal taking precedence over the real and the damage that does. Mm. And I think moving pictures is a bit more yeah, subtle about it, maybe in some ways, because like like the uh, the hyper real and more work set and things like that. And um, like they they very much explain the idea of Lily wants to dominate these things through stories here in a way that they don't really have to come out and explain in yeah. in moving pictures but the the characters in this um are wonderful and obviously you have the incredible three central characters but also mm. mrs gogol on saturday death as you said for like you know uh, when you think of his role i mean he shows up in almost every discworld book some of them much more than others obviously the ones that are about him but this is one of his better outings in one of the ones that isn't about him. He, mm. You know, he lent so much when he shows up. Casanunda is a lovely yeah. uh, addition as a kind of, you know, a kind of recurring <laughs> comic relief character. Uh, seeing Grebo as human is a lot of fun. Mm. Um, and then there's just much more emotional stakes in that way. Um, yeah, I get like, that. Uh, Mrs. Gogol and Saturday coming to terms with the idea that, you know, when he says, I wanted revenge, I wanted... Uh, you know what? I wanted the Duke dead. I wanted our daughter in power, and deaths as well. Two other three ain't bad. Mm. And them having to come out, come to terms with they put in twelve years of planning and endured exile in her case and death in death in his. And now that's sort of fallen apart at the end, but they sort of have to compromise. Like it's it's oddly touching in a way, like just them mm. trying to feel their way out of like, well, what's what's best for our daughter ultimately. And the, the relationship between the, the three witches, we get the more emotional depth of it, I think, in Lords and Ladies. Mm. But it, it's sort of touched on here. Um, and I, like, I, I love that bit where uh, they bring Granny to Mrs. Gogol after Granny is you know unconscious after taking a mirror. And Nanny says to McGrath, tell Mrs. Gogol to come and bring some ointments and like do what she can and if she can't do anything to her she better be a long way away <laughs> before i see her again and that kind of threat really shows you know how strongly the uh, nanny feels for granny that she you know she's kind of willing to threaten and fight with mrs gogol if she can't or won't do anything to help her yeah um yeah like i'd be willing to concede i think it'd be perfectly fair to put it up you know to kick uh, moving pictures down like for me 
if you were to compare the two, it's kind of a case of, um, you know, how well put together something is and how enjoyable something is, you know, mm-hmm. like where if you were to, like before I'd read them, if you'd like suddenly picked at random, okay, moving pictures or which is abroad, which do you prefer? And if I just thought about it, I would have told you which is abroad because I remember reading that and loving it. Mm-hmm. Whereas moving pictures, I just remember being fine. I just, I was quite surprised to find that there was such interesting, like intelligent themes behind moving pictures. So that's why I'm kind of thinking maybe that deserves it. But as I said, it's a case of like, you know, um, the interesting themes that they explored, which I just found really surprising in moving pictures, which is why I, I kind of hold it up quite highly now. But having said that, like you said, it's just, it's, it's, it's a really, it's emotional, fun, like adventurous kind of book. So like, it's, it's, it's a great, it's a wonderful read when mm. you just say in the simplest terms, it's just like a wonderful read. It's a page turner, which is great. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'd be willing to concede to put it like uh, over moving pictures if you wanted. I don't, I don't really mind. I, w- I wouldn't really object to that at all. So okay, well, just while while we're there, whether we do it or not, what what's keeping it below Reaper Man for you? Uh, it's the issues that I have with the ending and Lilith's character are the main issues I have there. I mean, Reaper Man had some issues as well, but I didn't think they were as blatant. That's me personally. Okay, what about you? Yeah, I, I you know like I could I could take or leave moving either either one of them. Um, I feel uh, stuff. I I feel like Reaper Man in some ways maybe maybe has higher highs like the uh, death Miss Flitworth um, thing relationship is really really beautiful. Uh, the faculty wizard faculty are incredibly funny, mm. um, and yet to. Sp- Bite the weird divide in 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 um, uh, which is abroad between the the travelogue element and the you know general element. In some ways, it feels a bit more coherent than than Reaper Man, which also like mm. can can feel kind of all over the place in in the juggling the the tree plots and so on. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's it's tough. Like I don't really know how to. You know how how to choose be- between either of them. There's always I'm always wary of recency bias. That like having you know just reread this, it's really yeah. fresh in my head, mm-hmm. and I'm very high on it. So, but um, yeah, I mean, I I, I suppose if, if I'm so I'm you know uh, ambivalent and undecided about it that. If you feel it should be kept below uh, Reaperman, I'm, I'm willing to go with that because I'll, I'll be here all day trying to trying to figure it out. <laughs> I, I I just personally feel like it's uh, Reaperman. Even I mean, you remember I wanted to put Reaperman lower, but I still mm-hmm. feel like this one is a much better book than. Uh, or sorry, no, I felt that Reaperman. Sorry, is a much better book than this one. Even though this is like one of my favorite out of the Discworld books, like it's you know it, it's almost a guilty pleasure, really. Yeah, yeah. So that's definitely that difference in like the your, I know, like the favorite and the best kind of things. Yeah, like yeah. The, yeah. This is so much fun. There are other ones you sort of have more admiration for in terms of their scope of ambition and how well they're constructed and so on. So yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll 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 go with that. Um, which is abroad the new number five below Reaper Man and above Moving Pictures. Cool. Um, and well, yeah, we're gonna have a hard time of it over the next what was it, 
we've got small gods up next and lords and ladies after that mm. and they both generally seem to feature on the fairly high end of the spectrum as far as a lot of people's opinions of the Discworld books go so I'll be, I'll be curious to see how we tackle them but I'm going to be very can I just say I'm going to yeah. be very interested to tackle small gods now because both you Rose and a number of other people hold that in the highest of regards but I remember not liking it that much really? when I read it yeah so it'll be, it'll be because I only read it once so mm-hmm. I'll be interested to see if I maybe I don't know like maybe I read that like in the rain or something maybe that's why <laughs> I thought it was bad but like I'll need to go back and figure out like did I genuinely not like this for a good reason or was I just in a crappy place at the time we'll see yeah I'm I'm, I'm very excited to get back to it like I, I really um, really like it um, and think it will feature quite highly and yet at the same time I'm curious to see how you know what will be whether my opinion will be changed coming at them approaching them in order and having to really go through them with the fine tooth comb in the way that we try to for the podcast but um, god you have to feel sorry for Eric don't you <laughs> I, I don't think Eric will be at the bottom by the time we finish this I think it will take a while before something displaces it I can't think of any book that like, I mean I like Eric well enough but I can't think of anything that was like as flippant you know I suppose yeah I mean it, it is going to come down to what we uh, like as it always does it's so subjective it's going to come down to what we value but for me I, I can still like Eric succeeds at what it tries to do but doesn't try to do very much yeah that's and that fair. is why it is below all of these other books which try to do even Colour of Magic which is you know very much a romp still tries to do more than Eric does mm. but I feel and, and this is way down line I feel there are later books that don't succeed at what they try to uh, what they try to do or what I feel they're trying to do and for me that would put Eric above one or two of them because okay. it feels more uh, complete and fun you know than a kind of uh, like as a successful attempt at something small than a kind of fail at, failed attempt at something more um, conversely there are other ones that like you know probably don't pull off what they're trying to do as much as they could and yet will still be higher like i mean as, as we go on say like 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 weird sisters right now is below witches abroad and maybe below lords and ladies i like i remember really enjoying lords and ladies but we'll see when we get there mm. so in that way you can say oh does witches abroad not or does weird sisters not uh, succeed at being a witch's novel in the, way that, excellent. In, in the way the other ones does and yet even if you were to say that it's still better than something like Eric which tries to do less but succeeds more so it's by no means there's no like, scientific way of ranking this but uh, yeah it is, it's it's my opinion anyway that, that Eric won't be at the, the bottom by the end of it but we'll see um, but that's all to come in the future and in the meantime if you want to keep in touch with us you can find us on Facebook on Twitter um yeah, if you just look up for Radio Morpork, we've got our website at um, radiomorpork.wordpress.com. You can shout out us on the street if you want either. Like We're quite recognizable. Yeah, if, you, if, you, if you happen to see us, exactly. Yeah. You obviously find us on SoundCloud and iTunes and innumerable streaming services. If you leave us a review on iTunes, that'd be great. That would help us get noticed, we'll help get more people involved. Um, <laughs> I, I can't promise we'll do that. Uh, I'm the lying part. I'm the bad witch in this scenario. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to be the good one. Now, now, I, now I know the burden of that. I know I can't even myself. You, listener, please be the good one and leave us a nice review. Um, and in the, in the meantime, um, thanks uh, and goodbye. Good luck. Thank you.